The country of Myanmar was in the news this week as there was a report of a, of a Baptist pastor actually killed this week um, by that brutal regime that now governs Myanmar. And when I heard that news, even though it was terribly sad, I could not think uh, of the man who originally took the gospel to Myanmar, then called Burma back in the early 1800s, a man named Adoniram Judson. All these years later, God is still granting fruit from Judson's ministry. When Judson was 16 years old, he entered Brown University and he, he graduated three years later at the top of his class. What his godly Christian parents didn't know was that during his time at Brown University, Judson was being lured away from the Christian faith, and specifically by a fellow student named Jacob Eames, who was not a, a, not a Christian, but a deist. And by the time Judson graduated, he, he simply did not believe the Christian faith anymore. He concealed this fact from his parents until his 20th birthday, when on that day, on his birthday, he broke the news to his parents that he wasn't a Christian and that he planned to move to New York to write for the theater there, which he did six days later. He rode off on a horse that his father had given him as part of his inheritance to New York. Like many who try to make it big on Broadway today, it wasn't the life of Judson's dreams. Judson fell into the company of reckless friends, his his work was not very successful, and he ended up living like a, a vagabond often with, with no steady place to live. Months later, he was traveling, and, and he was stayed in a, in a random small village inn where he had never been before. The innkeeper, when Judson checked in, apologized in advance that there might be some, some noise in the next door room where he was staying because there was a man in that room who was ill and dying. Throughout the night, Judson writes that he, that he heard people coming in and out of that room. He heard the groans and the gasps of the dying man. And he wondered if that man was indeed dying that night. And Judson considered his own mortality and wondered, was he ready to die and see the Lord? When he left the next morning, he asked the innkeeper if the man next door was better. But the innkeeper said, no, he's dead. Judson said, do you know the man's name? Oh, yes, that's a young man from the college in Providence. His name is Eames, Jacob Eames. You can imagine how this shook Judson. If Eames, his best friend from college, were right, then his death was a meaningless event. But Judson could not believe that what happened and the fact that his best friend from college just happened to die in the room next to him was a coincidence or that death was simply the end. He sensed that God was on his trail. He had not been seeking God, but God was seeking him. Several months later, Judson became a Christian. And five years later, he sailed for Burma as a missionary. And today, there are over 3,700 Baptist churches in Burma, the fruit of Judson's ministry. This morning, we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, a work written likely in the, in the 60s A.D., by Matthew, the former tax collector that became a follower of Jesus. This morning we're in Matthew 9, and we're going to see how Matthew himself became a Christian and the events surrounding his conversion. Matthew wrote this account with little fanfare, but the turnaround in Matthew's life was equally as dramatic as Adoniram Judson's. And given his role as an apostle and an author of one of the Gospels that testify to Jesus Christ, we, could, we would have to say that what we're about to read this morning is one of the more significant events in the history 
of the world. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 9. It's on page 814 of the Bible underneath your seat. The last few weeks, we've been in Matthew 8 and 9, two chapters in which Matthew wrote these these short vignette-like accounts of Jesus' miraculous works. Friends, these miracles, as we've learned, showcase vividly both who Jesus is and what he came to do. They demonstrate that in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, God's coming kingdom, his reign over death and evil and every imposter God, that kingdom has invaded this age. Jesus' healing of the sick and his calming of the storm and his exorcising of demons, they show us that he's already at work, isn't he, to roll back the effects of the curse and to defeat his enemies. In the miracles, Jesus proves not just that he's the messianic king come to save his people, but that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He does works that only God can do. Matthew recorded nine miracles in chapters eight and nine, grouped together in bunches of three. And then after each grouping of three miracles, Matthew inserts material about what it means to follow Jesus. We must understand not just in theory, right, the authority of King Jesus, but how we should then respond to this unmatched authority. Last week, we looked at the last of the second grouping of three miracles in the, in the healing of the paralytic. And this morning, we come to the, the discipleship material that Matthew puts at the end of that second grouping of three miracles. Let's read together in Matthew chapter 9. We'll start in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of this passage, which I hope will be the main idea of the sermon this morning, is this. In Jesus, there is abundant mercy for sinners and unrestrained joy for his people. In Jesus Christ, there is abundant, plentiful mercy for sinners and unrestrained fullness of joy for his people. Two points this morning from each of these sections of our passage. Number one, the king's call in verses 9 to 13. Number two, the groom's celebration in verses 14 to 17. Brothers and sisters, I pray that what we see of Jesus Christ this morning might simultaneously encourage our hearts and even challenge our intuitions. 
Because what we see in Jesus is, is stunning mercy for sinners combined with a disdain for self-righteousness. We learn that the presence of Jesus reorients religious practice to be radically focused on him, that he has indeed come to make all things new, even the ways that his people worship and approach God. Let's look at our first point this morning, the king's call. Verse 9 says that, that after Jesus healed the paralyzed man, he encountered a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. You know, we see in the paralytic and Matthew two very different stations of life and two very different initial postures toward Jesus. But we see the same result, don't we? The paralytic was obviously a man in need. Matthew and his wealth and power appeared to, to need very little. The paralytic lie prostrate on his bed, unable to walk. Matthew sat in the tax booth, seemingly in full control of his life. Matthew was not seeking Jesus, but instead Jesus sought out Matthew. And like the paralytic, changed his life. As Jesus summarized to the Pharisees in verse 13 at the end of that section, Jesus did not come to call the righteous but sinners. And we see in the calling of Matthew a prime example of the purpose and nature of Jesus' messianic mission. This is why he came. You know, if I say something like, hey, I, I came to church this morning. What's implied in that statement is that before I came here, I was somewhere else. And then I came here because I wanted to. It was purposeful. It had a reason. And so implied in this statement by Jesus in verse 13 is that he existed before he came to earth, that he came here for a purpose. And he states the purpose explicitly. Why did he leave heaven's glory and take upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men? Verse 13 tells us he came to call sinners like Matthew, to call sinners like you, like me, to repentance. Having just demonstrated his authority to forgive sins in the case of the paralytic, Jesus now called to himself a man whose very job marked him as a renowned sinner. Friends, I'm afraid that even back in Jesus' day, those who collected taxes had a bad rap. Earlier this week, I was on the phone, believe it or not, with the IRS, trying to sort out an issue in which the IRS still owes me a refund from years ago that they have not yet given me. And the IRS representative wasn't helpful in the least. She didn't even try to help me solve the issue. She had no interest in that. And I just thought, how much must you hate your life to work for the IRS? <laughs> if you do, forgive me. We can talk and reconcile afterwards. <laughs> Friends, of course, I'm joking. But it was not a laughing matter in Jesus' day. Tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people. They were viewed as traitors in league with Rome. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the Romans allowed the Jewish tetrarchs, in this case Herod Antipas in Galilee, to collect and use taxes from the regions over which they ruled. So, so Matthew would have worked for Herod, who worked for the Romans. The tax booth at which Matthew sat was likely a custom station where collectors like himself levied a toll on goods and trade commodities. Capernaum was, was strategically situated along a trade route from, from Syria down through Egypt. 
not to mention its coastal location along the Sea of Galilee. But it, it wasn't merely tax collectors' affiliation with Rome that generated such disdain from the people, but also their ethics. Tax collectors were allowed to skim off the top of the tax for their own personal profit. As long as what they charged did not cause unrest, well, there was really no cap limit to the tax that they levied. They charged the necessary amount plus some, and then they pocketed the change. So the tax collectors profited at the expense of their fellow citizens. We know just how poorly tax collectors were thought of by the frequent pairing in the Gospels, tax collectors and sinners. It's like peanut butter and jelly. They just go together. So the fact that Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, to be his follower is shocking. Jesus was not concerned, was he, what people might think about him? He wasn't out to win a popularity contest, but rather to demonstrate that his mercy reached even to tax collectors to demonstrate his power to transform a dishonest traitor like Matthew. Notice that Jesus did not request that Matthew follow him. He didn't even invite him cordially. He summoned him like a king with his subjects. Follow me. And Matthew apparently recognized in Jesus Christ something so uniquely authoritative and worthy of following that he immediately got up and followed him. You know, given what we learned back in chapter 8, in verse 18 to 22, about the nature and the cost of following Jesus, Matthew must have been willing to forsake everything to follow Christ. And indeed, Luke, in his account of Matthew's conversion, tells us this is exactly what happened. Luke writes in 528, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. You know, friends, this isn't quite the same thing as Peter, James, and John leaving their fishing nets to follow Jesus, as we saw earlier in Matthew. I'm not implying that theirs wasn't a genuine following, but, but rather that their abandoning their, their nets wasn't necessarily final or absolute. They could return to fishing if they wanted to, right? And indeed, they did after Jesus died on the cross. But it was not so with Matthew. When he turned his back on the tax booth, he could not go back. He wasn't just walking away from a vocation, but he was walking away from the lifestyle that was assumed in that vocation. He was repenting of all the dishonesty and extortion that made tax collecting the disreputable job that it was. Beloved, following Jesus always entails forsaking something. Our sin and all other rivals that threaten to compete with our wholehearted devotion to him. One of the clues of Matthew's transformation is what we see here in the next few verses. Luke in his gospel highlights the fact that Matthew himself hosted a feast for Jesus and his disciples and then invited, invited his friends to the party. You know, we're, we're given no evidence that Matthew was was wistful or he was second-guessing his decision to follow Jesus. In fact, it's just the opposite, isn't it? He followed Christ and he threw a celebration, even though he would, he, he no doubt, he, he would take a pay cut. Significantly so, he would lose his status with Herod and the Romans. Matthew looked at his loss as gain because of who he was now following. He recognized that Jesus was better than money. He was better than status. He was better than power. 
He had decided to follow Jesus and there was no turning back. Friends, just briefly on a side note, I think the fact that the narrator tells this story in such an understated way here in Matthew, far more so than Mark or Luke, is strong evidence that the author of this gospel is indeed Matthew himself. The earliest church tradition recognized Matthew as the author of this gospel, and, and one of the literary clues is the self-effacing way that the narrator tells this account. He did not highlight, as Mark and Luke did, his name change from Levi to Matthew, right? He didn't linger on all that he left or highlight all that he left to follow Jesus. He didn't even point out that he was the one who threw the party that we're about to read about in the following verses. Rather, he kept the focus on the authority and the mercy of Jesus. Notice the guest list at Matthew's party, according to verse 10. The type of friends that Matthew had were understandably people like, like him. They were other tax collectors and sinners. His friends were not the religiously clean, but the re religiously defiled. His tribe was the seedy among society, those who were obvious and overt sinners. You know, friends, unfortunately, what's often implied in the discipling of new believers like Matthew is that you not only need to leave your sin behind to follow Christ, but you need to leave behind all your former relationships. And certainly the dynamics of certain relationships will change for the believer. But friends, just as much as Jesus doesn't want us to be of this world, he has not called us out of this world. By calling you to follow him, Jesus does not want you to now ignore the relationships you had as an unbeliever but rather to re-enter those relationships as a Christian with a distinct and renewed purpose shaped by the gospel of Christ. Matthew was following the lead of the one who had called him. Jesus had sought him out, a wicked sinner, a social pariah. And now Matthew sought the good of his friends by getting them into the presence of Jesus. As we saw last week with the paralytic, friends help friends get to Jesus. As happy as an occasion as this feast was, some who learned of it were not happy. That Jesus shared a, a meal with tax collectors and sinners was scandalous to the Pharisees. Remember, these were the, were the religious leaders who were scrupulous in their obedience to the Mosaic law to the point that they created extra regulations in order to be as holy as possible. Their question to the disciples in verse 11, it reads more like an accusation, doesn't it? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? How could a religious man eat with such irreligious people? You know, it's, it's one thing for a, a religious teacher to teach sinners, but it's another thing altogether for him to hang out with them. Listen to what the Mishnah, the rabbinic teachings of the Jews, of the Jews said in this regard. Keep thee far from an evil neighbor and consort not with the wicked. In other words, holiness meant distance not only from sin, but distance from sinners. To the Pharisees then, holiness meant not having a relationship with the, the wicked, lest they be defiled by them. But friends, Jesus' reclining at table with renowned sinners shatters that presupposition, doesn't it? 
Unlike the Pharisees, Jesus modeled what true holiness is. It's not distance from sinners. It's devotion to God and the reflection of his glory in mercy and love to others. Beloved, it's because of Jesus' holiness that he was a friend of sinners. He didn't turtle shell from the wicked. He actively sought them out in order to lead them to repentance. Friends, by eating with the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus was not giving them a license to sin. He was loving them. He wasn't endorsing their sin. He was evangelizing them. Look at Jesus' response to the Pharisees in verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus exposes the self-righteousness of the Pharisees in two ways. First, by a one-sentence proverb, and then by quoting the Old Testament. His statement in verse 12 is self-evident, isn't it? And it's truth. The healthy don't need a doctor, but the unhealthy. Not the well, the sick. So if you find a doctor unwilling to help the sick, run, right? That's not the doctor you want. A true physician helps the disease and attempts to heal the sick. And so it is with Jesus. His aim was to to heal the sin-sick soul. Friends, Jesus did not go to the sinners in order to join in with them or even because they were the ones who gladly received him. Rather, he went to them because they were sick and they needed a type of help that only he could provide. At this point, you can imagine the Pharisees nodding along with Jesus, right? Oh yes, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Praise the Lord, we are well, right? It's what they thought in their blindness by virtue of their righteousness. In the, in the proverb, they're not the ones who need the, the doctor. Those, those, those tax collectors and sinners are the ones who need the physician. So the obvious question I think implied and certainly what's coming next is if you are so well, Pharisees, in your righteousness, why are you not making an effort to help the spiritually sick? Why are you not going to the tax collectors and sinners like I am? This is what Jesus gets at in verse 13. He turned the the tables on the Pharisees by telling them, go study the Old Testament that you claim to know and follow so rigorously. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus here quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And in doing so, he puts his crosshairs directly on the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Friends, a few weeks ago, we we talked about this. Remember the principle when Jesus or the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament? They're assuming what? The context of the verse they're quoting. So what's the context of Hosea 6.6? Hosea's prophecy is a blistering critique of Israel. Hosea pictures Israel as an adulterous wife who left Yahweh for other lovers and the idols of the nations. You know, at times Israel gave lip service and the outward posturing of worship, but their hearts were far from the Lord. That's the context of Hosea 6.6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather 
than burnt offerings. In other words, friends, performing ritual sacrifices and burnt offerings with an idolatrous heart is like a man who cheats on his wife all the while showering her with gifts and telling her how much he loves her. Keeping the law is meaningless if not accompanied by a heart of hesed, of mercy, of steadfast love. Friends, the Mosaic law, including the sacrificial system, was designed to point Israel to two supreme loves. Foremost, they were to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, right? They were to love their neighbor as they loved themselves. The loyalty to God was to spill over in mercy to those in need. That's why the law was given. So when Jesus instructed the Pharisees, go and learn what this means, he's saying, you guys have completely missed the boat. The point of law-keeping is not outward holiness, but an inner heart of mercy. His point is scathing, isn't it? He's, he's telling the Pharisees by going and studying Hosea 6.6, 6, I'm lumping you together with apostate Israel. Like faithless Israel of Hosea's day, you try to keep the veneer of righteousness with no awareness or concern that your hearts lack what is most important. Love for God and love for others. Mercy. Isn't it ironic? Even though the Pharisees thought that they were well, they were terminally ill. Friends, if you like the Pharisees, think yourself to be righteous apart from Jesus. I'm afraid that Jesus has nothing for you. That's what he means in that last explanatory phrase at the end of verse 13. I, I came to call the righteous, not, or excuse me, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't come to call those who, like the Pharisees, think themselves to be right with God, but instead he came to call sinners who recognize themselves to be such and who run to him for their righteousness. Jesus has nothing to offer the self sufficient and the self righteous. Rather, he has everything to offer the one who, like Matthew, turns. Turns from sin to follow him. He has everything for the one who relies on his ability to save, like the paralytic did. He has everything for the one who recognizes his own unworthiness, like the centurion did. It's those who are sick who come to the doctor. And friends, praise God, Jesus' door is always open. Jesus fulfilled Hosea 6.6. 6. That's what he's saying. He embodied the intent of the law while keeping it perfectly. He is full of mercy for sinners. Friends, this is why we write hymns about Jesus Christ. Throughout the history of the church, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of their souls. Is that what it says? No, Jesus, lover of my soul. Those who come to Jesus don't recognize Jesus to have done his greatest work for someone else, for that sinner around the block, for that member across the aisle. No, we recognize Jesus' greatest work to have been for ourselves. He came to save a sinner like me. Friends, Jesus' entire coming, his entire existence was for this purpose. He lived the life that God created Adam to live in the beginning, the life that you and I and every human being throughout history should have lived. 
He lived a life of perfect obedience and fellowship with the Father. Jesus lived in our place. And yet, he didn't just represent us in life. He, he represented us in his death. His mercy for sinners in his life and ministry was just a preview of the matchless mercy that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. At Calvary, Jesus died the death that we should have died. And when I say that, I don't mean the form of death, the crucifixion, but in the wrath of God that he, he absorbed in himself. He drained the cup of God's wrath for sinners like you and me. He sheathed the sword of God's justice so that that, that sword that was so awake for him now sleeps for us. He took God's justice so that he might pour out God's mercy. He died in our place. And then he rose in our place. His death would not have accomplished anything had the Father not vindicated him and the Spirit not raised him to life on the third day. Friends, death could not hold him because sin was not in him. He conquered death in its penalty. He conquered it fully in his glorious resurrection. So that now, now friend, if you'll turn from your sin like Matthew did, and you'll follow Jesus by faith, and you'll rely on his perfect life, and his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection for you, you will receive from Jesus' hand all the benefits that he won. Forgiveness, reconciliation with God, life now and forever. Brothers and sisters, I pray that the Lord might give us here at Redeeming Grace Church a heart like Jesus for sinners, that he would guard us from the type of self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisees. Friends, this church exists for the spiritually sick. Even our corporate discipleship is merely the process of progressively forsaking sin and following Jesus. As we do that together, we hope to see here at RGC an increasing desire among us, an increasing activity among our members to reach out and to extend the mercy of Christ to the lost. Too often, I think we Christians are guilty of the type of self-centered righteousness that thinks holiness means distance from sinners. That righteousness means remaining unsullied from the messiness of relationships with the lost. I certainly have been guilty of this in the past. We project to our families and friends and coworkers that we ought not to be around them. We don't live like them anymore now that we're a Christian, so we just should not be around them. They live in sin, we don't. And tragically, when we project that to them, we project the fact that Jesus might be like that too. He too stands at a distance. He too purses his lips and crinkles his nose at their uncleanness. Let's do a little experiment. I want you to visualize in your mind's eye someone who's a great sinner. Take a moment, seriously. Grab the image in your mind. Maybe it's a family member who hurt you in the past. Maybe you see a transgender coworker who flaunts, flaunts their sexuality. Maybe you see the neighbor marked by vulgarity, the addict, friend. 
Beloved, is there room in your heart for a relationship with that person? When you think of them, is what rises in your heart disgust or hatred or the desire for, for space and distance? Or is what rises in your heart love and mercy in the desire to bring that person to Jesus? And don't hear me telling you to forsake appropriate wisdom necessary for these types of relationships. But do hear me saying that the heart of Jesus for sinful people ought to pulse within us. How are we here at Redeeming Grace Church doing in our evangelism? I hope we haven't forgotten that Jesus is in the business of saving sinners like Matthew, the likes of you, the likes of me. Let's not forget the depths that Jesus plumbed to save us. Because as soon as we do, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees will follow. Number two, not only the king's call, but the groom's celebration. The Pharisees, yeah, the Pharisees questioned why Jesus feasted with sinners. And now in verse 14, the disciples of John the Baptist question why his disciples don't fast with the righteous. Verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, we don't know what prompted this question, but I, I can't help but wonder if Jesus's feast with sinners was the catalyst for this type of question. This man claims to be religious. He's a religious teacher, and yet we never see him or his disciples fasting. Instead, we see them feasting. You know, the Mosaic law only pres prescribed fasting on one day each year, and that was when? The Day of Atonement. So two weeks ago, the Jews celebrated Yom Kippur. They would have fasted from sundown on the 15th of September to sundown on the 16th of September, I can count. Uh, by the time of Jesus's day, pious Jews fasted quite often though. We don't know how often John's disciples fasted, but the Pharisees whom they mentioned fasted every Monday and Thursday. So it's not hard to imagine, is it, the disciples of, of the Baptist doing something similar given John's ascetic lifestyle. By this time, John was in prison, so perhaps their fasting was, was connected to his incarceration. There's no way to know for sure. But the point is, they recognize a distinct difference between their own religiosity and that of Jesus and his disciples. Why did their religious expression not have the same seriousness and piousness as the Pharisees and John's disciples? Well, Jesus answers their question with three illustrations about mismatched things. See that? In verse 15, he talks about mourning at a wedding. In verse 16, about unshrunk cloth and an old garment. And then in verse 17, about, about new wine and an old wineskin. In Jesus' first illustration in verse 15, he answers their question with a question. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Friend, when's the last time you went to a wedding to cry? Like in sadness, not joy. Now we go to a wedding to celebrate, not to lament. We go to a reception to feast, not to fast. Jesus essentially says, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. 
So why in the world would my disciples fast when this is a time of celebration and joy? Oh, the audacity. Like, who does this guy think he is to claim that? Well, notice that Jesus uses language that John's disciples would have likely been familiar with because John himself Use it of Jesus in John the Apostle's Gospel in chapter 3. If you read John 3, 28 and following, the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom and emphasizing the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the long-awaited deliverer of God's people. He's like a bridegroom come to marry his bride. But if that's not stunning enough, this language of the bridegroom and the bride was used all throughout the Old Testament to refer to God himself. One such passage is Hosea's prophecy. Turn back quickly to Hosea chapter 2. It's on page 752. Page 752 of the Bible underneath your seat. Hosea 2. Let's pick it up in verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Well, friends, clearly the promise of Yahweh is that he will bring his adulterous people back into a relationship of marriage with himself. And when will that happen? Well, the passage says it will happen when, when God makes a covenant, verse 18. And this, this new covenant will be so all-encompassing that even the animals and the created order will be restored back to the harmony that they once enjoyed in Eden before sin and death entered the world. Turn back to Isaiah, Isaiah 54. We opened our service from Isaiah 54 this morning. That's page 614. Page 614. Hosea's contemporary, the prophet Isaiah, spoke of this same theme of God as the groom, as the husband. Let's start in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should go no more over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Aha! 
Just like with Hosea, God promises that his people's redemption from exile will be so complete. It's going to be as if their husband brings his formerly disgraced and shamed bride back to himself. He's going to gather her in in great compassion. And when will this happen? When he establishes, according to verse 10, a covenant of peace. Friends, this is the background for Jesus' question to John's disciples. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Do you see what his question implies? Oh, this day, this day when God would redeem his people like a bridegroom marries his bride has arrived because Jesus has arrived. Jesus' question to John's disciples is only audacious if he's someone other than that preeminent messianic bridegroom come to inaugurate this new and better covenant of peace with his people. But indeed, that's who he is. He's the son of God incarnate, our Messiah and our Lord. Friends, do you understand now why John's disciples excuse me, Jesus' disciples, do you understand now why his disciples didn't fast? Why would they? The Messiah's day had dawned. God had come to his people. Their hopes had been fulfilled and their deepest longings met. There was no need to fast because mourning had given way to joy. So, So does that mean that we Christians shouldn't fast since Jesus has come? It's a natural question, right? Well, notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 15. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus seems to imply here that when he's gone, his disciples would indeed fast. Notice the passive tense of the verb. The bridegroom is taken away, right? Even here early in his ministry, Jesus forecasts his crucifixion when when the rejection of the Jews would culminate in him being taken away. In the book of Acts, after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, we see evidence of his disciples fasting and praying once again. Fasting is never commanded by Jesus, never enjoined by the disciples as something that Christians must do regularly, but it does seem that from time to time, fasting is indeed a valuable and fitting tool to remind us of our great need of God. And so it's entirely appropriate to fast and to pray, friends, when when you're struggling in sin, for instance, or when you're facing a crisis, when you're burdened to see God demonstrate his his power and presence in a particular way, it's appropriate to fast. But all of our fasting and our worship and our life as kingdom citizens is dramatically different than before Jesus came. That's what Jesus is talking about in these next two illustrations of, of mismatches, the unshrunk cloth, on an old garment and and new wine and old wineskins. I think these illustrations piggyback off the bridegroom at the wedding, right? Clothes and wine, kind of wedding things. Even if these illustrations strike our ears as strange, these these illustrations would have made immediate sense to Jesus' hearers. Here's what he's he's saying. If if you don't pre-shrink the cloth with which you patch old clothes, and then you wash those clothes, what's going to happen? The patch is going to shrink. It's going to pull away from the stitching, and you're going to have a bigger hole than when you started. You know, We put wine in bottles today, but in the ancient world, they used animal skins. 
the fermentation of the wine would cause the, the skin to expand and to stretch. Each new wineskin had about, you know, one good stretch in it. That's all. The older the wineskin, the more non-stretchy it was. It would have been the dumbest thing ever to put new wine that still had to ferment in an old wineskin. It's a surefire recipe for the skin to, to burst and for the wine to spill out. What's the point? Jesus' point is that what he has brought in his coming is so new, it cannot be patched onto or poured into ancient Judaism. He didn't come so that his followers might worship him with the forms and perspective of Judaism with a Jesus twist. No, he's come to inaugurate something entirely new. It's a new covenant with new forms of worship and spirituality. And so it is still today. Beloved, the kingdom that Jesus brought in his coming didn't evaporate into thin air when he, when he ascended into heaven. No, our sins really are forgiven. Death really was defeated. The Spirit of God was, was actually poured out upon the church. God's kingdom power is at work to subdue hearts to King Jesus through the gospel. This is the new wine. And so what's the connection to the original question by John's disciples? Well, Jesus seems to be saying, all that we do now is his new covenant people. We do in a completely different way than when he came, than before he came. Before God's people fasted, longing for a day when the, when the Messiah would come. Today we fast because he has come. Today, all of our worship and all of our spirituality, including fasting, is done with the knowledge that Jesus came and he will come again. Even our fasting and our mourning and our aching in this life is infused with resurrection hope because the new wine of the kingdom is flowing. Jesus, the bridegroom, has come and he has rescued his bride. And one day, he's coming back to gather her, to gather us to himself forever. At the Last Supper, Jesus inaugurated the meal of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper. I hate that we're not sharing it this morning after this text. This meal that we Christians celebrate regularly not only remembers Jesus' death, but it proclaims his death until he comes again. It previews the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb the age when the bridegroom will dwell with his bride forever. So friends, when Jesus held up the cup, which represented his blood that he would pour out for the forgiveness of our sin, he told his disciples something about fasting, actually. He didn't use that word. He said, even though I don't regularly fast while I was here on earth, there is one fast that I'm going to keep until the time I return. He said as he held out the wine, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the tender mercy we see displayed in who you are. The pride and the arrogance and the 
self-sufficiency and the self-righteousness that so often dominates our heart. There was not a, a shred of it in yours. There was none of it. Yours was a heart of mercy and compassion and grace. Oh, Father, help our heart to pulse after the Lord Jesus's. May your spirit pour out the love of Christ in our hearts, as Paul wrote, so that that poured out love then spills over to others. And Lord Jesus, as we worship you, as we think about our own spirituality, about the things that we do to remind ourselves about who you are, we ask that we would celebrate and worship and even fast, mindful that you have come and you will come again. The bridegroom is coming for his bride and we will feast in the house of Zion. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.